Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby. We are thankful that you have joined us today. This is the work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We're located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. You can reach us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, That You May Grow Thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer, and I'm one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. I'm Jacob Taylor, one of the evangelists. And I'm Ross Oldenkamp, also an evangelist. And in this particular episode, we're going to be focusing upon a very interesting time when there will be a healing in a Pharisee's home on the Sabbath day. We read about it in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24, but we'll begin looking at verses 1 through verse 14. Now it happened, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silence. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to him, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You know, there was a man in attendance on that day who was sick with a disease that was marked called dropsy. Uh, It's marked by an accumulation of a watery liquid in any cavity of the body or tissues. We don't know if this man was there simply as a guest, or if he hadn't been invited to ensnare Jesus, we just don't know. The Pharisees certainly knew that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath before, and it had generated a great deal of controversy. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and went immediately to what was on their minds. He spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees present. If Jesus healed the man at once, they were ready to accuse him of laboring on the Sabbath. If he did not heal him, they would have been ready to report a failure to extend mercy or a sign of fear. It's interesting to note how Jesus dealt with them. He asked, 
Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And the answer we are told is they held their peace. They could not say it was lawful, for that would defeat their purpose and leave them open for the same ridiculous charge they intended to level at Jesus. They could not say it was not lawful, for the law did not forbid it. Jesus healed the man and sent him on his way. He then used the same illustration that he used in Matthew 12 and 11 to show the lawyers and Pharisees their hypocrisy. If it was lawful to save one of their farm animals on the Sabbath, then it was certainly lawful to save the life of a man. They knew Jesus was right, and they could not answer him. You know, it says that they watched him closely, and in verse 7, it says... So they, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places. You know, I, I, I like to think of this as a blind spot uh, to which we all need to be aware. You know, at, we need to watch out for this attitude, this, sen, uh, this censorship kind of attitude where, where we think of ourselves as though our role is to spot error in others. They watched him closely so that they might accuse him. We know they're not honest about this because when he asks them a question, they keep silent. And if they were really concerned about what they believed God's will was, then they would have taken the opportunity to teach Jesus what they believed was, was right, right. But they keep silent because they want him. They would have rejoiced. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not rejoice in wrongs, but they would have rejoiced at the opportunity to engage uh, or to accuse because of this supposed wrong that he would have done for this man. But the blind spot is seen in that while they are ready to jump on Jesus for for some uh, uh, supposed sin, they can't even see themselves clearly to see that their hearts are not right, that they are not humble people, that they would choose for themselves the best places. Verses 7 through 11 certainly can be lived out in a very literal sense of not taking this um, this high place of honor at the table, um, at a wedding feast, or just in general, but also just, again, in, in everyday life, putting others before yourself, looking for the best of others before ourselves, um, just as Philippians 2 talks about, that Jesus displayed that attitude in dying for us um, and putting us before himself, and we can do that as well. It's not about us being in this place of honor and look at how great um, I am or how other person is, but it's about the betterment of others, ultimately the glory being given to our Father in heaven. The lessons taught in verses 12 to 14 is simply that the motive for hospitality determines its genuineness. True hospitality is that which is utterly unselfish. We are not to be hospitable for what we get from our guests in return. The reward for true hospitality will be enjoyed eternally. So then you need to look now at verses 15 through 24. 15 through 24 in Luke chapter 14. Here's what it says. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he said to him, 
a certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to leave me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there still is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you, that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. The whole point of this particular parable is the man who made supper is representative of God. The supper represents the provisions and blessings of God for the salvation of man. And the invitations represent the offer of salvation God makes to man through his son, particularly in this case, I think, the Jews. In rejecting the invitation, there are no valid excuses. There are no valid excuses. Earthly things first and spiritual things last is deadly, and it will result in a revocation of the invitation. To summarize, it is obvious and undeniable that not a single man of all of those first invited would partake of the suffer. They had all, without exception, made excuse. The master of the house determined that someone would enjoy it, but not one of those who had spurned his invitation would do so. Jesus had offered the blessings of the gospel to the Jews. For the most part, they had rejected his invitation. They offered various excuses, none of which held any weight at all, and they had rejected him. The Gentiles, others more worthy, would receive the blessings first extended to the Jews. I think Jesus would whole, wholly agree with what the individual said to him. Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus tells this parable to show, you know, there's a lot of people who just will not appreciate how blessed is that individual. Uh, all have been invited, but uh, so many excuses and lame excuses at that uh, are offered for why people will not come. Uh, having recently looked at the story of David inviting Mephibosheth to his table where he will eat as one of his sons, I just really am blown away at, at the connection that, that exists between the two stories. We cannot fathom a lame man like Mephibosheth saying, no, I don't think I'll be interested in that. But that's exactly what people do today. When God invites them out of the uh, out of the uh, trenches, out of the the cesspool, out of just the 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 disgust that is the world, and invites them to his great feast, and they say, "No, we think we'd rather wallow down here." Yeah, answering this this invitation with 
going to this feast is so crucial. Um, just as Ross was pointing out, we can have these things where it's, you know, I would come to, to church or I would come to know God and have a relationship with him, but, and then whatever follows that is, is not a valid answer or excuse. Um, th- these things that are brought up by these people here, these excuses here, aren't inherently sinful um, in what they're doing, but it's, it's, in, it pales in comparison to going to this feast. There's nothing for any of us to be doing that's better than doing what needs to be done to accept this invitation and be at this this dinner, um, as this parable shows us. Let's continue on in the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, and we'll see the sermon about the cost of discipleship. It's found, as I said, in Luke chapter 14, specifically verses 25 or 25 through 35. Uh, Jacob, you want to read those? Yes. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who are watching it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This person began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to face the one coming against him with 20,000? Otherwise, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and requests terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or the manure pile, so it is thrown out. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear. If I've got it correct, Jesus is still in the region of Perea. The exact location at this time and even the direction in which he was traveling is not really indicated. But there is a multitude with him, as there is most of the time. And from the Lord's words, it appears that they are probably filled with messianic expectation and excitement. This prompted Jesus' discourse concerning the high cost of following him. Yeah, concerning that cost, Jesus shows that there is no one who can come before me, uh, not even um, one's uh, spouse, a father or mother, any of these relationships we hold dear and cherish to ourselves. I think of Job as a great example who uh, stood up to his wife and said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we accept good from God's hand and not adversity? And it says God, God says he did not sin at all by saying that, what sounds like a very strong uh, rebuke to his wife. When anyone comes, be, tries to threaten that, a relationship you have with your God, uh, your loyalty can, uh, can is, needs to be clear that God comes first to you. I've actually had people say that the reason they didn't worship or, or attend with the church was because uh, her husband uh, did, not, did not want her to do so. And uh, this is just an example of, look, if you want to be pleasing to God, no one can come between you and him. 
You know, it's easy to be part of a multitude that loosely follows the Lord. It's another thing altogether to truly be his disciple with all that that entails. You think about how many people are churchgoers but are not truly disciples of the Lord Jesus because obedience to the Lord's commands is necessary and is expected of of one who would be a follower of him. Seeing this large multitude of people, Jesus pointed out to them that being his disciple does not come without cost. Oh, that people would realize that today. And he showed them the wide difference between mere lip service and actually adhering to him being one of his servants. Yeah, just the massive point that I see is um, give, give it all up in comparison to having a relationship with Jesus. It is so worth it um, beyond comprehension in having this relationship with him. Um, and, and to love nothing more, to strive to have that relationship with him and have nothing get in the way of that that relationship. The word hate, <coughs> excuse me, the word hate that's used in verse 26 simply means to love less. If I may paraphrase it, what Jesus was saying was, he that comes to me and does not love father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even his own life less than me, less than he loves me, cannot be my disciple. His point was that to be a follower of him, a person must be willing to place Jesus before everything, even before those people and those things that he holds most dear. Anything less than total dedication and devotion, well, it's just insufficient. It reminds me of Paul's statement in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. You know, verse 33 uh, is important because uh, it, it shows us that this is a commandment for all disciples. I know that if I make a parallel here from the rich, the rich young ruler, some people come away from that and think, "Wow, that was, God sure asked a lot of him." I'm sure thankful that he hasn't asked me to go and sell all that I have and follow me. Uh, verse 33 basically is a call to forsake in your heart uh, anything that could become an idol, just like money had become an idol to the rich young ruler. It's a call to separate ourselves. It's like a call that Jacob made, put away your idols from you. That if we have anything that is more important to us, uh, then we need to make that uh, severance and recognize that whatever we do possess belongs to God. We need to use it for his glory. Common sense teaches men not to begin any costly work without first seeing that they have the wherewithal to finish what they start. And he who does otherwise exposes himself to general ridicule. Nor will any wise king enter on a war with any hostile power without first seeing to it that despite formidable odds, two to one, he will be able to stand his ground. And if he has no hope of being able to do that, 
and he will feel that nothing remains for him to do but to make the best terms that he can. Even so, says our Lord, in the warfare you will each have to wage as my disciples, despise not your enemy's strength, for the odds are all against you, and you had better see to it that, despite every disadvantage, you still have the wherewithal to hold out and win the day, or else not win it at all. It is a spiritual battle that we find ourselves in, and it is a spiritual battle that we must count the cost when we enter to become a disciple, a follower of the Lord and Savior Jesus. Okay, that's going to have to do it for this particular episode today. Again, we appreciate your listening and encourage you to invite your friends to listen to That You May Grow Thereby as well. Until next time, thanks for listening.